and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the September jobs numbers out, 263,000 new jobs, which beats three estimates. But I don't even know why we talk about this number anymore. It feels like it's just inertia, uh, like we're imitating the investotainment goofs on CNBC because this number doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell us anything. So what you have is sort of just mystics who uh, interpret this number to whatever political economic ends they desire to see uh, what matters unfortunately are the central bankers and the kleptocrats and what they're up to those rent seekers that really are turning the dials and pulling the switches it seems to me but that's just me i'm not an expert in the field that's just my handle on it from you know being a small investor like so many people and trying to figure it out and listening to these different voices and trying to discern who is making sense and who is operating on the level and who isn't. One of the guys we know that operates on the level and makes a lot of sense is James Perry, which is why we have him on the show. And he joins us now, Senior Vice President and Partner at Arbor Research. Jim, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Good morning. Morning. So um, am I wrong about that, or do you place a lot of weight on the monthly jobs numbers these days? Uh, I don't place a lot of weight on the monthly job numbers. Um, in the investment world, really, things are about trends, right? And this number that we got today, which was, you know, 263,000 new jobs, uh, is lower than it was last month at 315. And funny enough, it's actually the lowest number of the year, right? Um, the stimulus uptick back in 2020, I think, uh, 1.6 million jobs were created, the top number that year. Last year it was 770, and this year it was about 700 was the high print, but we haven't had a number above 500 for five or six months now. So the jobs number really is trending downward. Uh, what, what this number does, though, it really makes it easier for the Fed to hike because their number one priority is inflation and and we expect a another 75 point basis hike before the month's out right absolutely um there's a euro dollar futures curve which is slightly esoteric but the point is that the market is betting right this minute uh there's an 88 percent chance of a 75 basis point hike that number was at 80 percent before the number and it was at 70 two days ago and it was just above 50% last week. So anything above 50%, the Fed has always gone to the prescribed number. So oh, plus 75, the and, odds are 9 out of 10. And what does that say in terms of where we expect inflation to be this month? What are CPI and PPI going to look like? Right. Well, you know, last month, CPI came in at 8.3%, right? High, I think, was 85 a month or two ago. Um, you're going to get a number that's above eight, right? And that's the problem. Um, the Fed has created inflation. The government has created inflation. And um, it's still too high, and it's it's not showing any signs of easing right now. And uh, uh, you're thinking about this some more, then what 
will the impact of the rate hike be? I mean, uh, so much of this has already already been baked in in terms of reaction, right? I mean, do we then expect uh, the market to just continue to trend lower, even with the little the sort of mini burst recovery the first couple of days of this week? Right. Well, you know, that's a big question, and that's, that's, that's a million-dollar question. You know, but the fact is, just taking a little step back, remember that the pandemic has allowed the government to print $10 trillion, right, in a little over two years. $10 trillion, right? So the Fed's balance sheet's nine, and fiscal stimulus was another five. So everybody's portfolios have done well over the last 10 years as the Fed has printed money. And now you're bumping up to the top of the ceiling where the bond market's not allowing you to just print at, at your will to, to please the government, right? I mean, they always say that history is written by the winners and the narrative is always presented by the people in power, right? So the people in power believe that inflation is priority number one. So not only does the Fed do it, but the administration agrees as well. So that makes the job easier for the Fed. The problem is the stock market really isn't priced for a recession yet, and um, that's a big problem. I was looking at something last night that was sort of interesting to me, just to give you a little sort of sense of where we were. There's this great sector of the stock market called the garbage collection, which is the profitless stocks, and there's a lot of them, um, but and they track them. So back in 2001, profitless stocks, the garbage collection, dropped 80%, right? And in the great financial crisis, 2007, they dropped 70%. And now they're only down 50%. So at the very least, those profitless stocks have probably got another 25% in them on the downside. And frankly, we haven't even gotten back down to the pre-pandemic highs in the, in the S&P. That's another 10 or 15% from here. So just being kind of logical and normal, the market needs to price itself for a recession because that's what you're going to have. Mm. So you're uh, a buyer of this notion that uh, we're going to either continue to see negative growth and that we haven't hit the earnings recession yet that's going to tank the market further. Correct. I mean, we'll know more, obviously, uh, in the next two or three weeks when the earnings reports for Q3 start coming in. The profit margins are falling. I mean, if you talk to small businesses and large businesses and households. Um, and that's what happens when costs one. increase, don't they? Yeah. I mean, the number one problem is everybody's facing higher costs on everything they do, whether it's putting food on their tables, putting gasoline in their cars, or, you know, keeping their, their factories or small businesses going. Prices for doing business are going up and profit margins are falling. You uh, wait till people get their home heating bills. <laughs> Because yeah. that's going to be, yeah. I mean, we've only had a few days where we had to turn the heat on, and I got my bill, and I'm like, this is not a sustainable system. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Amy. I mean, you're right. I mean, look outside. The leaves are green, you know? <laughs> well, it's so bad in Chicago that on here. the way here, they're asking, the gas company is asking people to check on their neighbors who might not be able to pay their bills during the winter months to make sure that they're okay. Yeah. I mean. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. And Illinois is tracking to be a net exporter of energy, despite what the governor said at last night's debate, uh, tracking to be a net exporter of energy when we have been, uh, I mean, a net importer of energy when we have been a net e exporter. 
So we're right. going to need to buy energy from outside the state when we currently do not need to because of his green energy policies by the end of the decade. And that's a report out from uh, energy sector analysts that was reported in Cranes a couple of weeks ago. He lied about it last yeah. night. But, you know, the reality, you can lie about the reality all he wants. That's what he does. But that's where we're trending. Yeah. I mean, you know, oil is at 90 bucks a barrel. And, you know, Dan and Amy, we've talked about this before. You know, a, gal- a barrel of gasoline was 30 bucks a barrel the day Biden took office. And that was at 90 before the Russian incursion into the Ukraine. And it's still here. And now it doesn't seem like the administration has much bargaining power with anybody, including OPEC. But, you know, the biggest problem is we are still producing something like 3 million barrels a day less today than we were two and a half years ago. That's ridiculous when we've got the largest supply of recoverable deposits in the world. We've got enough energy in this country to power us for 200 years. Oh, and yeah, we're going to go to reason, Venezuela and ask them. I'm sure we're going to buy their oil. Yeah. Isn't it a, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's almost comical. I mean, if it wasn't so so tragic, it would be comical. It's not energy we lack. It's brain power, yes. uh, at uh, least in the decision-making. Sure. Yes. Um, yes so, you know, you've set out an interesting missive uh, to your uh, subscribers. I'm happy to be one uh, this week. And it's going to be something you said before, but I just it was really, really illustrated. Um, the tracking, the increase in the money supply with the performance of the S&P. And you see Absolutely. it ride up with the increase of the money supply, and you see it ride down with... Money, si- money supply now being now now contracting. Um, and so so this is this is when people mention the Fed trying to uh, figure out the soft landing. This is what they're trying to figure out, how they manipulate the money supply so that they reduce inflation on some defined schedule without completely tanking the market. And it seems like um, the slow walk is only extending the pain. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you're absolutely right, Dan. I mean, you know, what's changed since the pandemic is that we've all become global macro investors, right? Like, we know about the Bank of England and the ECB and the Bank of Japan. And the reason for it is these guys control such a massive amount of printed money that has distorted economic activity around the globe. And now they're all pulling it back. And when that happens, you know, if history is our guide, and it should be, and there's there's economic statistics about this going back something like to the you know eight eight hundred and fifty years or something like that. When money supply goes down, risk assets follow, and when money supply goes up, risk assets rise. And the trouble is, you've got two different sort of competing you know groups of people. One is the real economy, and one is Wall Street. And Wall Street loves the bull market, right? So they're always talking stocks up, stocks up, profit margins are holding in there. And again, the narrative is the ones with the power, and they've got some. But the fact is that you know the stock market, the stock market's in trouble. Um, it's it's going down. I mean, you know, inflation's going up, interest rates are going up, liquidity's going down, volatility's going up, and risk premiums have to rise. And investors know that. I mean, the flows of money out of the um, Bond market has been phenomenal. Again, you know, cash is king here. Money market funds got something like eight, eighty-eight billion dollars in the last reporting period. Bonds were down for the tenth week in a row. 
and stocks are down for seven out of the last nine. So, you know, investors know that risks are rising. And you can see the spreads in, in my market, you know, on the institutional side. It's really hard to get bond trades done. So we've got we've got some work to do here, and it's not going to be fun for everybody in the investment world. Do you, do you see a, um, a burgeoning revolt against the ESG, environmental social governance, uh, orthodoxy that uh, that uh, people like Larry Fink at BlackRock are trying to impose on corporate America. Um, I note this uh, because of a development in Louisiana where the state treasurer there, John Schroeder, penned a letter to the aforesaid Larry Fink saying the state of Louisiana is liquidating all BlackRock investments within three months over a period of time to divest nearly $800 million, uh, from the bank's money market funds, mutual funds, or ETFs because of Larry Fink's promotion of green energy policies that would destroy Louisiana's economy. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was born in Louisiana, right? So it's a, it's a big oil-producing state, and I, I follow it pretty closely. And I'm, I lived in Florida, and I follow that one pretty closely, too. So Louisiana did that. Florida went the opposite way with DeSantis, right? And I think it's one of those things, Dan and Amy, that, you know, the ESG revolt is coming. I mean, people know it's been an economic disaster. It's, it's, the narrative is a nice one. The revolt, though, will be a silent one. You mm-hmm. can't come out too loudly and say, I know you don't really have an electric car. It's a battery-powered car. And those batteries have to be recharged with you know, electricity that's burned with coal. Now, if you want to deny that truth, that's your option if it makes you feel good. But if you don't believe that, you can't come out and tell somebody that because they just don't want to hear it. You know, when you go to a cocktail party, you don't argue about politics and you don't argue about religion. And when you're talking on the radio about business, you really can't argue too much about the people that believe in green energy because it's a narrative that is supported by the people who are in power. And until that changes, it has to be a silent revolt. Now I know why I'm never invited to cocktail parties. Uh, (laughs) James Perry, Senior VP and Partner at Arbor Research. Jim, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you very much. Amy, have a nice weekend. You you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Whether it's trying